I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 and 14 this morning. And the theme is uh, thanksgiving to God for our election. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll start reading from God's Word at verse 13. So please give careful and reverent attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Now for those of you who have the ESV, you'll notice that it read differently in verse 13. Instead of saying that God has chosen you from the beginning, it says that God has chosen you as first fruits. So we'll interact with that in just a, a few minutes. I do prefer the New American Standard and the other translations uh, that have from the beginning, but we'll, I'll uh, discuss that briefly here in a few moments. Okay, well, let's review the context. Uh, Paul has prophesied that before the day of the Lord comes, there will be a great apostasy and revealing of the man of lawlessness who by his demonic powers and signs will deceive the masses bringing about a, a great apostasy, who, and, and, and the masses will reject the truth of the Gospel and then come under God's final judgment for their wickedness, their unbelief, and they will perish. So that's the context. So he's been emphasizing all of these who will reject the truth and believe the lie and ultimately be judged for it. And so now on a, from that gloomy note, now he transitions to a word of encouragement, a word of hope for God's people. So now in verse 13, he begins to speak about how God will protect His people, save His people, in contrast to the judgment of those who are deceived. And Paul will actually now begin to glory in the salvation of God's elect. That God has guaranteed that every one of them will enter glory. So that no matter the dangers, no matter the trials they face, whether we're living in that final generation or not, regardless of the trials and dangers, God will sustain His people and they will all arrive safely in heaven. So that's a much happier, uh, encouraging note, certainly for God's people. And this, for the Apostle Paul, deserves great thanksgivings to God. So again, he starts out in verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So he starts praising God. He starts giving thanks to God. 
And in this passage, there are three major things he's going to thank God for. Number one, our election. Number two, our calling. And number three, our ultimate glorification. And those are things that Paul is thanking and praising God for, even though he's just been dwelling on just the terrible uh, destruction and apostasy and deception from the man of lawlessness that will happen right before the Lord comes back. So let's begin to look at uh, verse 13, and let's begin by looking at his giving of thanks. Notice he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. So Paul says, we should always. We should because God is worthy of it. We should give Him thanks because He deserves it. That God is, is, has done such incredible things for us. He is worthy of our thanksgiving and our praise. It's a duty to give thanks to God, but it's also a privilege and a joy. And this is something, thanksgiving is a theme that uh, Paul has emphasized often, even in these two letters that he wrote to the Thessalonian believers. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, he exhorted them, and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So thanksgiving should be an ongoing habitual part of our Christian life. We should be a thankful people. So I don't know if you've come here today and I ask myself this, are we a thankful people? Or do we find ourselves kind of with a sinking, dark, grumbling, complaining spirit? Or are we truly a thankful people so that that thankfulness just bubbles up in our life more often? I think that's, that's what we should aspire to. That's certainly something we're commanded to in everything. Give thanks. For this is God's will for you. To be a thankful people. Now notice what he says here in verse 13. We should always give thanks. Now that's similar to in everything give thanks. We should always give thanks. And again, this is something that Paul has expressed on a number of occasions we read it in Ephesians 5 always giving thanks we read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he when he opened up 1 Thessalonians he says we give thanks to God always for all of you he did the same thing when he opened up 2 Thessalonians and he started writing this letter in chapter 1 verse 3 he said, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So in Paul's mind, thanksgiving was something that should always be taking place. And they were always thankful for seeing God's grace in saving sinners. So thanksgiving should be something that is done always because God's grace to us is always and everlasting and never ending. So he deserved thanksgivings. All the time. Now who does he give thanks for? Well, for you, verse 13. These are the Thessalonian believers in this context. And notice how he calls them brethren and beloved by the Lord. 
So he's thanking God that God has saved them and now they're brethren within the same spiritual family and they're beloved by the Lord, that God loves them. And specifically, the Lord here probably refers to Jesus Christ. So Christ loves them. And Paul is thanking God for that, for that love. Now the ones offering the thanksgiving here in verse 13, the we should always give thanks to God for you, of course, is Paul and Silas and Timothy who uh, are mentioned at the beginning of this letter. They were the missionaries through whom God used to plant this church. And they're very thankful for just God using them and bringing salvation to these people. But in a general way, Paul was just a man committed to thanksgiving. He was a man that had a thankful heart. And I think in that we have something to learn from the Apostle Paul. He was giving thanks all the time. He exhorted the Thessalonians in everything to give thanks. And we should be a thankful people. A thankful heart, you see, is is uh, focuses on the blessings that we have from the Lord rather than focusing on what we don't have. A thankful heart is mindful that uh, we have the promises of God, that even the hard things in life, the trials, the distresses of life, God has promised to work them for the good. So a thankful heart camps on the blessings we have and the promises that are given to us by the Lord. We should also be thankful for what we don't have that we deserve. Right? As a sinner, what do we deserve? Hell. You know, as a sinner, really, think about it. What do I, Alan Connor, deserve right at this point in time and throughout all of my life? I deserve to burn in hell. And I am thankful that God has not given me what I deserve. So on the one hand, I'm thankful for what He's given me, but I'm also thankful for what He's not given me because of what I deserve that He has not given to me. He has saved me by His mercy instead. So a thankful heart is a precious thing, uh, beloved, and we need to, to pray and seek to develop an ongoing, habitual thanksgiving within our heart. A thankful heart is God-centered. An unthankful heart is thing-centered. And we want to be God-centered. And a thankful heart is that. A thankful heart feasts on the table of God's joy and peace and love and contentment. A thankful heart has a, has a banquet of that that other hearts do not have. And a thankful heart is a cure for a complaining and grumbling spirit. The more we're focusing on the good things that God has given us and the bad things that He's withheld from us, then it can oftentimes offset that complaining and murmuring spirit that's so easy to develop. So a thankful heart is an incredible blessing and we see it in the uh, example of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Well, Now let's uh, look on in verse 13 and see the reasons for why Paul is giving thanks to God. 
Notice he says, we give thanks to God always, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, number one, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So he's thanking God that God has chosen them for salvation. So God's election is the root of our salvation. So he's thanking God for choosing them. Do you ever thank God just for choosing the believers in this church or for choosing you? Uh, this is something that Paul certainly was mindful of. It's something we should thank God for. We should never get over the grace of God that chose us. Now look at the word chosen here. It's kind of interesting because this is a, somewhat of a unique word that Paul uses. Uh, he's already mentioned they're being chosen back in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 4. But here he uses a different word for God has chosen you. This particular word emphasizes the idea to take something in hand and to grasp it. To take it and grasp it. And it's also in the middle voice which gives the idea that God has chosen you for himself. He has, he has laid his hands and grasped you he has taken you in hand for Himself. He wants you. He has chosen you. He has brought you near to Him. That's kind of the idea of this, of this choosing here. In other words, God in His amazing grace has actually delighted in us. We are His prized possession, His beloved children. We're His heirs. We're the apple of His eye. He's inscribed our names on the palm of His hand. His eye and His thoughts are always toward us with eternal good in mind. And we are beloved in the Lord, as Paul has already written. God has chosen you as a believer in Jesus Christ for Himself. He chose us because He wanted us to be with Him forever and to enjoy the fullness of His grace and bounty. Well, when did He choose us? From the beginning. Now again, the uh, ESV uh, translation says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So these are the two options that you'll find. Most translations have chosen from the beginning... The ESV is somewhat an island in the sense that it translates it chosen as the first fruits. A couple of comments. Both of these readings are well established in the Greek manuscripts, which makes it a little bit of a challenge to, to know which is the correct reading. Uh, but both of them, you can find them in, in uh, a good number of Greek manuscripts. The idea of the believers being first fruits is certainly a biblical idea, so it's not like this is unbiblical. It's certainly a biblical idea. Uh, Paul and John and James all refer to believers as being the first fruits in one context or another. However, when Paul uses the word first fruits, 
for the first converts. He's normally speaking of the first fruits, first converts in a region or a province, not just a city. So for example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Paul uses the same word and he speaks of Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. A country, a whole province, a large area from Asia. The first fruits from Asia was Eponidas. He was one of the first ones to be saved in Asia. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, he speaks of the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Again, a whole region. They were the first fruits. They were the first ones to be saved in that area. The problem with uh, using this word here is that if Paul wrote that you Thessalonians are the first fruits in this region, Thessalonica is in the region of Macedonia, and so is Philippi. Philippi is also in Macedonia. So it really wouldn't be accurate to say that the Thessalonians are the first fruits because it was the believers at Philippi. They were converted in Macedonia before the Thessalonians were. So that may be a bit of a reason to prefer the other reading that we are chosen from the beginning rather than chosen as the first fruits. Because they really weren't when you're talking about the first fruits of a region, i.e. Macedonia. That, would, that title would go to the Philippians because they were converted first before the Thessalonians. So with all of that, I'm, I would prefer the other reading that we are chosen from the beginning. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is parallel to what Paul said in Ephesians 1 that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So this is a reference ultimately to eternal election. That from the beginning, God chose us from the beginning, from the very outset. So, And it's parallel, I believe, to this expression in Ephesians 1.4. That we're chosen before the foundation of the world. So that before... God created the heavens and earth when there was nothing but God. God in His mind, I guess we could say, within the the Godhead, they planned out salvation and He chose sinners to be saved. So all of that was a part that took place before the world was even created. And I think the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God chose you from the beginning. So now, why did God choose us? This is the next important thing to observe. He chose us for the purpose of salvation, of saving us. So the little word for there introduces is a, is a purpose. It introduces a purpose clause. So why did God choose us from the beginning? It's for salvation. He chose us in order to save us. That's the idea. Now this is interesting. Because our Arminian friends have to totally reinterpret this verse. See, our Arminian friends will believe that 
God basically chose those who first chose Him. And oftentimes it goes with the idea that in eternity past, God looked down through the ages of history and He saw that, that on that particular day, you chose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You got saved. And so then, therefore, God foreknowing that, foreseeing that, chose you because you first chose Him. Now that's not what Paul is saying here. If that was Paul's idea, he would say that he chose you from the beginning because of your salvation. Because of your faith. But that's not what he's saying. God chose you in order to save you. If the Arminian view was right, it would have to read something different than that. It'd have to be God chose you because He foresaw your faith. Or something like that. No, He chose you in order to save you. He didn't choose you because you had already become saved by your own free will decision to believe in Jesus. That's really an entirely opposite idea from what Paul is saying. He chose us to save us. So God didn't choose us based on anything that we did, whether it's any works or even a foreseen faith, is purely by His grace. Paul taught that in Romans chapter 9 in dealing with uh, God loving Jacob and hating Esau. He said, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved but Esau I hated. So the choice was made not on the basis of anything that they did. They hadn't even been born. It's not based on works. based on God's sovereign choice. So the first thing that Paul is thanking God for is that God has chosen you. He's chosen you from the beginning. In eternity past, ultimately I think is the idea and He chose you for salvation. He chose you that He might save you. So this salvation, what a glorious uh, idea. Uh, he chose us for salvation. Salvation really kind of has two ideas. We are saved from sin. We've been rescued from the penalty, the pollution, and the presence of sin ultimately. And but we've also been saved for God, for His enjoyment, for His presence with Him forever. So God chose you, and that's true of the Thessalonians, true of every believer here this morning. God has chosen you for the purpose of saving you. And if you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, it's because God has chosen you. That's ultimately why we get saved is because of His divine election. Now Paul adds to this the means by which God uses to save us. The sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You see, the Christian salvation is rooted in eternity past, but it's worked out in time by the Holy Spirit. The God who ordains the ends also ordains the means to get to the ends. So in order to save us, God has also ordained that we be sanctified by the Spirit and 
We have faith in the truth. These are the means of Him saving us. The sanctification by the Spirit can have two ideas. It can either refer to practical sanctification, progressive sanctification, where the Spirit of God gradually makes us more like Jesus Christ, helps us to grow in godliness. That's, that's a gradual thing in this life. It always remains imperfect and partial, will be consummated in glory. But that's part of the means of our salvation. The other idea is that the sanctification by the Spirit refers to what we call definitive or positional sanctification. That all believers have been set apart positionally by God through our union with Christ. The dominating power of sin has been broken. We're holy in Christ. And this is a once for all time deal. And sometimes when you read Paul's letters, like when he, when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were struggled with a lot of sin in their church. But Paul wrote to them and he said that they have been sanctified, past tense, in Christ. So they're still growing in sanctification, but there's also a sense in which they've been sanctified. They've been set apart in Christ. And that could be the meaning here as well. And then he adds to it that God is also going to save you through faith in the truth. Faith in the truth. And I think this faith, obviously, like the sanctification, is part of the outworking of our election. God chose you from the beginning to save you and He's going to save you through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So everyone that's elect, that's chosen by God, at some point in their life will come to faith in the Lord Jesus. So I think you can argue that in this passage is faith therefore is a gift of God and it ultimately is a work of the Holy Spirit that grants us faith to trust in Christ. There's a lot of verses, I think, that support the idea that saving faith is a gift of God. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you're not saved. If you can't say Jesus is Lord, your faith isn't real. No one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables a sinner to say that and be saved, to come to faith in Christ. In Romans 12, verse 3, I'm just taking snippets of some of these verses, but it speaks that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has parceled out to each a measure of faith. Faith is His work, His gift. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The gift of God certainly includes faith in this passage so that our faith is very much tied to God's electing grace and this is seen in Acts 13 48 as many as been appointed to eternal life predestined to eternal life believed so those who had been appointed by God chosen by God selected by God they're the ones who believed so that their faith is a gift of God, the outworking of their election. 
James said the same thing, basically. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? God chose the poor, why? To give them faith so they would be rich in faith. Their faith is a result of God choosing them. And Jesus in John 6.37 says the same thing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me. All that the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world and given them to me to save, they will come to me in faith. They will come in saving faith. Their faith is the outworking of their election. So I think in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the first thing that uh, the Apostle Paul is thanking God for is that God has chosen them. They would never have come to Christ on their own. They're spiritually dead sinners. They're hostile in mind to God. They don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. And Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We would never come to faith in Christ. We would never get saved unless God chose to change our spiritually dead heart, to to exchange it for a living heart, and plant spiritual life within us so that now the lights come on, we see our sin, we want Christ, and we believe in Him. We would never have done that if God hadn't chosen us and granted us these, these blessings. So He saves us through the Spirit setting us apart And then faith in the truth, which is ultimately His gift to us. Faith in the truth. It's interesting, Paul emphasizes, it's just not any old faith that saves you. It's faith in the truth. And what does the truth refer to? Well, the truth of the Gospel. The truth of, of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the life, and the truth, right? So it's faith in the truth. It's faith in, in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, us comprehending that truth has to be revealed to us by God. Our own darkened minds aren't going to figure it out on their own. So remember when Jesus asked His disciples, who do men say that I am? And some of them said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some of them say you're Elijah. Others say, well, you're one of the old prophets. But Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what did the Lord say to Peter? He said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To have faith in the truth, God has to reveal that truth to our hearts He has to give us a conviction that it's true and give us the faith to trust in it. So it's faith in the truth. It's not just like the postmodern idea today. Everybody can have their own truth. You know, you can have your truth and I can have my truth and our truths are equal and we have no right to criticize somebody else's truth. That's their truth and it's okay if it's different from my truth. That's postmodernism. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That idea that truth is, can be true for you if you sincerely believe it isn't going to save anybody. I mean, you can, you can be sincerely believing that something is true when it's really not. And that's not going to benefit you at all. 
Just like uh, someone who thinks they're Superman. They sincerely believe they're Superman. And they're going to jump off a building. And what's going to happen? The law of gravity, which is a truth of nature that God put in this world, will convince them of the error of their thinking. Because they're going to crash to the ground. No, you have to have faith in the truth, not faith in a lie. And so Paul emphasizes that part of the way God saves His elect, His chosen one, is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through faith in the truth. And the Spirit works through all of that to bring us to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on quickly to the next verse. This is the second thing that Paul is thanking God for. It was for this He called you through our Gospel. So because God chose you to save you in eternity past, that now needs to be worked out in history. So at some point in time, God called you through the Gospel. And he just and, and what was the means of them being called? It was the preaching of Paul and Silas and Timothy. But God has to call them. And so He's thanking God for that what we would refer to as that effectual call of God. And that's what Paul means when he speaks of calling in this way. This is a call of God. God called you. This is not just Paul calling you. When men preach the Gospel, we call sinners to come to faith in Christ. If they can resist that, they will resist it. Apart from God working in their heart. But when God calls a sinner, you can't resist it. Because it comes with power. It comes with life. It resurrects their dead spirit and gives them life. And it just it impels them to come and respond to the Gospel in faith. The famous illustrations, of course, is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the, from the grave. And He said, Lazarus, come forth. Could Lazarus have resisted that call? Of course not. Because it comes with resurrection power. It comes with the grace to actually raise the dead. Same thing when Jesus said to that widow's son that had died, young man, I say to you, rise. He couldn't have resisted that. Or later on, when, when Peter said to Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. She was dead. She couldn't resist it because the power of God was calling her at that point. Giving her life. And you just automatically will respond in faith. So He called you, notice He says, through our Gospel. And this is the interesting thing about this effectual calling. It normally takes place when someone is hearing or listening to the Gospel being preached. It's when the Gospel is being preached that that's when normally God does that inner calling in the heart and suddenly it's regenerated and it responds in faith. Those two are connected. James says something similar. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. Brought us forth is, a, is an expression of regeneration or the new birth. He regenerated us. He brought us forth by the Word of truth. 
is by the Scriptures are being taught and preached that that's the context in which the Spirit of God normally brings that grace of salvation, that resurrection life. And, and someone comes to faith because they're being called right then and there. Peter says the same thing. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. You're born again through the living and enduring Word of God. So that's usually when people get saved. They're at a meeting, they hear the Gospel, and suddenly God calls them and all the resistance is stopped. And they want Christ. They want forgiveness. They want salvation. And they come. So I think the Apostle Paul is saying something very important here about the the preaching of the Gospel because that's how God saves sinners. It's in the context of them hearing when God finally gives them ears to hear and they hear and they respond. So that's the second thing that he's thanking God for. And then the third thing is uh, at the end of verse 14, so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thanking God for their choose, for God choosing them, for God calling them, and now thirdly, for God giving them eternal glory. To gain the glory, this expression that's used here means to possess it, to actually obtain it. And in other words, the reason why God chose us and called us through the Gospel is to bring glory to Christ, but also enable us to share in Christ's glory. And this is the, the, the grand finale of our salvation when we actually get to heaven and Christ shares His glory with us. We will be glorified with the glory that comes from our glorious Savior. He has earned it. He has received it. And He receives all the glory for His atoning death and resurrection on our behalf. He suffered and paid the full penalty for all of our sins. He died, rose again. He conquered the wages of sin. That is death through His resurrection. He won eternal glory. All the glory for our salvation goes to Him. But then when He comes back, He shares His glory with us. And this is an amazing thing. I love those verses in, in Philippians when Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, you know, our citizenship is in heaven, but we're waiting for Christ to come back. And when He comes back, this is what will happen. Verse 21, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So Christ will come and take our body if we're alive at that time. He'll, he'll transform it. If we're dead, He'll resurrect it. But He will transform the body of our dust and ashes into conformity with the body of His glory. He's going to share His glory with us as redeemed creatures. He's going to share that. So, the final goal of our election is ultimately our glorification. 
And this is where I think the Apostle Paul in this passage really spans eternity in these two verses. We have been chosen from eternity past. We're being redeemed and saved in history. But then ultimately it will be consummated in eternal glory when Christ comes back. So from eternity to eternity. That's a span of God's plan of redemption. And Paul's just overwhelmed with it. And he's just thanking God and praising God for for their salvation because God has mapped it out from beginning to end. From the Alpha to the Omega. That it's all God's work of grace. And he's just overjoyed and giving praise and thanksgiving to God because His eternal purpose cannot fail. So the reason why Paul is giving thanks to God as he is confident that the church will not be deceived by the lives of the Antichrist, they'll not become apostate because of God's covenant love. That He chose them, He called them, and He will glorify them. And nothing will separate them from the love of God. And so he, he's giving them this incredible word of encouragement in light of all the bad things that, that lie ahead of them. God is faithful. They will persevere. They will not become a part of the apostate because of God's sovereign will to save His elect. And it spans from eternity past to eternity future. So what encouragement should they have? Because God has promised to keep them safe to the very end. Now it doesn't mean that God's people will not have their share of trials and troubles. It doesn't mean that God's people won't sometimes fall into grievous sin. But the Lord is faithful to them and He'll bring them through it. Simon, Simon. Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. That's the grace of Christ that keeps us. We'll stumble. We'll fall on our face. We'll deny Christ even sometimes to our own shame. And we will sin And we will stumble. We'll have trials and troubles that test our faith with discouragement, with fear, with anxiety and worry. But God has promised that He's going to keep us and bring us safe to the end. He has chosen us. He has called us. And He will glorify us. That's His promise. And His Word cannot fail. So whenever God's people are facing troubles and trials, we need to be reminded of these incredible truths. That Christ died for us to solve our sin problem. And Christ intercedes for us to protect and guard our faith. He will not let us go. So let Satan do his worst. Let him deceive the nations with his Power and signs and wonders. Let the man of lawlessness dupe the masses with his lies and torment the church with his persecution. But they will not fall away. They will remain faithful. 
Not because we're so spiritual and we're so godly, but because God is so faithful to us. That's the key. He will never let you go. His grace will never depart from you. And that is our security, our protection, and our hope. A good wrap-up to this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, when Paul says, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And that is such a wonderful uh, encouragement and reminder. And that's why the Apostle Paul is giving thanks to God for His choosing them, His calling them, and ultimately His glorifying of all of His children. Well, all of this requires a purchase, a removal of our sin for our salvation to be accomplished. And that's why the cross of Christ is also something that we should always be thanking God for. Before you and I can ever be saved and glorified in heaven, our sins have to be removed. Our iniquities must be forgiven. And only Christ could do that. And only Jesus Christ did do that. And as we now partake of the Lord's Supper, as we should be thanking God for our election, for our calling, and for our ultimate glory, we should thank God for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. His atoning death for us. And thank God for Jesus dying to purchase all that grace needed to save us from our sins and secure for us a place in glory. By trusting in His blood and His righteousness, that is the the key that opens heaven's door. Let us give thanks to God for our salvation and let us respond in acts of love not only to God, but also to one another in response. Matthew Henry said that thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. A thankful heart is one sure way to overcome a sinking spirit, to give buoyancy to the heart and joy to the spirit. And this is why this is called a, a Eucharist, a thanksgiving. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, our heart should overflow with thanksgiving to God for our salvation. And because of that, we can have great joy and we can grow in our walk with the Lord as we remember and celebrate and rejoice in all that He has done to save us from our sin.